This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Welcome to Trumpet Hour today. I appreciate you listening in. I'm Joel Hilliker. We're going to start the show in Germany. This nation's response to the war in Ukraine has been fascinating to watch. It's been simultaneously strong in terms of boosting Germany's military spending and weak in terms of blunting the punitive measures against Russia. New reports are out saying that the German people are disenchanted with their new chancellor, Olaf Scholz. We'll have a conversation with trumpet writer Richard Palmer about this. Then we'll hear about freedom versus tyranny. The left talks a lot about the value of freedom and individual choice, but that's essentially a matter of branding. We'll hear a report from trumpet writer Rufaro Manjepa about how the freedom that the left speaks of is only a veneer. In reality, they're employing many tools of tyrants, and the true nature of their thinking is being exposed. In fact, it has a very sinister spiritual dimension. For our third segment, we'll talk about some fundamental problems with our healthcare system. People put enormous trust in this system, but there's something fundamentally wrong with a healthcare system that doesn't actually focus on health. It doesn't make people healthier. It's really more of a disease care system that only prospers when people are sick. We'll have a conversation with personal trainer and holistic nutritionist Jorg Mardian about this. And I'll conclude today's show by talking about the importance of sacrifice, specifically the importance of sacrificing for the sake of family. Now to talk about what is happening in Germany since Russia invaded Ukraine, we have from our office in England, Richard Palmer. Hello, Richard. Good afternoon. It's really been fascinating to watch Germany through the Ukraine war. First of all, you had... The conflicts of interest, they had built a pretty strong relationship with Russia over the years. Uh, and once the invasion began, really shortly after that, you had this earthquake announcement from Olaf Scholz, this huge increase in military spending and a tremendous amount of support from uh, German lawmakers and the German public. Uh, but then you also had signs that Germany wasn't particularly interested in punishing Russia uh, for what it, it had done, and it was actually undermining some of the um, the efforts to do so from other nations. Maybe I'll just give you a chance to talk about those those elements of this story before we talk about the latest about Germany's chancellor. Yeah, I think a lot of uh, commentators are kind of confusing two different trends here. You had Russia invade Ukraine, and then just days afterwards, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz came out with this really strong announcement. Uh, and he talked about how Germany is going to basically be doubling its military spending from here on out, that they'll be spending an extra 100 billion euros on their military you know, compared to the 50 billion they typically spend each year. Uh, so you know, some, some genuine and massive changes to Germany's relationship with its military. Around the same time, he also appeared to signal some genuine and massive changes on Germany's relationship with Russia. You know, they'd come under a whole lot of criticism because of this relationship in the run-up to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. People were even accusing them of, with, with justification of facilitating that invasion of Ukraine. You know, for months, they were telegraphing to Russia that they would not be punished, uh, that, that they would make sure that they weren't punished, that they would make sure that NATO did not stand wholeheartedly behind Ukraine. And around the same time as that military shift came, there appeared to be uh, a shift from Germany on Russia as well. And Olaf Schultz really worked hard to give the impression of a Germany getting right behind Ukraine. When you look at the reality and go beyond the rhetoric, that's very different. You know, he promised a whole wide set of weapons would be sent to, to Ukraine. Before, you know, famously, Germany, Ukraine asked for weapons. Germany sent them helmets in a field hospital. Uh, you know, he big announcement. That's going to change. It hasn't. Those weapons have not arrived in Ukraine yet. Hmm. Uh, you know, they're getting weapons from, from, from Britain. They're getting weapons from America. They're getting weapons from other European countries. They're not getting weapons from Germany. And even weapons that are coming from other countries that Germany needs to sign off on 
even though sign-offs are being held up by bureaucratic red tape and that whole process is being slowed down. Uh, they gave the, he gave this impression that Germany would be fully on board sanctions against Russia. Again, in reality, it seems like Germany kind of made, the, there was a real risk that Germany could have been left outside the West that their closeness of Russia could have kind of forfeited them any potential of leading Poland, some of these other nations. Uh, they could have just been abandoned. Instead, they did what they needed to do. They changed these appearances so they may remain within the West and then undermine these sanctions from the inside. You look at the headlines and it sounds like Russia has been completely cut off from SWIFT, the, inter the international payment system. The reality is about 30% of Russia's banking has been cut off from SWIFT. Very different. And it's thanks to Germany that a lot of that has been very different. You've had Europe and you've had the United States. Oh, sorry, you've had the UK and you've had the United States say we're not buying any more energy from Russia. Europe, led by Germany, has consistently refused to do that. Uh, to the point that Europe is actually sending more money to Russia now than they were before they invaded. Because gas prices have gone up, coal prices have gone up, oil prices have gone up. These are the overwhelming, this, this makes up the overwhelming majority of European trade. So any loss of trade because of sanctions has been more than made up by the increased price on those three commodities. Uh, now, that's so the, just, just to pause on that for a second, that's quite extraordinary. Uh, you, you, Olaf Scholz did put the pause button on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, did he not? Yes. Yes, he did put the he this pipeline that is already complete, that was waiting for its certificate to begin operation. He paused the production of that certificate. Uh, yes, so you know, again, I think he he did the minimum that he needed to do to stay in the Western camp, and I and that was one of those things. Uh, so essentially, he's he's doing a move that that has uh, the appearance of of looking like he's really being tough with Russia, but all of these energy deals. Uh, that you say are ongoing and continuing to uh, funnel money into Russia. This is the type of thing that doesn't get quite the headlines, but really shows the real intent the, of Germany with, Russia's, uh, with Russia. That's right. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's vast amounts of money. Uh, on some days, it's been over a billion euros per day has has mm. gone to to Russia and, and this is a this is a lifeline this is why you know, euro intelligence a, a great website that's run by uh, the veteran journalist Wolfgang Bunschel they called them sinos sanctions in name only huh uh, you've had uh, the telegraph Ambrose Evans Pritchard making making similar points that when it comes to you know they they don't get rid of russian gas they say oh, oh we'll figure out a way to get rid of it by the end of the decade uh, it's all very wishy-washy so yeah it's it's all appearance appearance based so uh, help us to understand this we uh, we have uh, this relationship going on and and in you you wrote an article some time back about f germany's phony war with russia that drew attention to some of these and you you talked about the fact that russia and germany have a history of making secret deals we've been talking about a secret deal between these two that probably has uh, been in place for some time. Our editor-in-chief, Gerald Flurry has talked about that. And really, what we're seeing now is very strong evidence that that's exactly what has gone on, that Germany is abiding by its its terms of that deal, even as it's making these public pronouncements that would seem to be contrary to that. When you measure the fruits uh, rather than the words, this is what we see. Now, at the same time, Germany uh, says that they are... Uh, Olaf Scholz says we're going to increase military spending. The public is very much behind this. This is something that we've talked about for a long time, that there are some officials in Germany that have wanted this and have pushed for this and have been restrained by public resistance, by uh, the demons in their history. Um, and really, that is the shackles are kind of released it appears like uh, Olaf Schultz is is saying these things in a way that has got the public behind him thanks to what Russia has done thanks to what America did in Afghanistan we were talking about that some of that last week now just shortly after this uh, that announcement was not that long ago just a few weeks ago uh, we have these reports coming out that basically say that the public has pretty quickly, grown disenchanted with uh, Olaf Scholz. Uh, help us to understand the, what's going on with uh, with the public uh, opinion of him now. 
Yeah, I think there is a real sense of crisis in Germany and in all of Europe. And people need leadership in crisis. People need somebody that they feel like is stepping forwards, is is competent, is 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 dealing with the problems. And I think initially it did look like Olaf Schultz was doing that. Right. Uh, and he got a bump in his popularity. I mean, there was a sense, I think we even have a sense, you know, oh, wow, Germany's got a different leader now. This isn't the same, you know, he stepped forwards, he gave that um, announcement. That announcement did seem to come, you know, he didn't, he didn't have these long committee meetings necessarily. He didn't you know, run it by everybody in his government. He made a strong, firm decision, uh, active, decisively stuck with it. And I think people really supported that. Uh, yeah, I think in a way, uh, like you mentioned, we were probably um, somewhat surprised by that, given just the, the the difficulties that Germany had in putting this government together and and putting him at the head. It seemed like it was it was the uh, product of a number of compromises, one on top of the other, and you end up with an Olaf Scholz that you just think, well, how long is this going to last? When he makes this this uh, announcement you think wow that that was that was unexpected this is not angela merkel anymore you know that it felt very different from from some of the things that she's done where she kind of always decisively led once it was clear which direction people were going in anyway <laughs> right you know, he i think it's clear everybody is going in that direction but he took that step you're know, just three days in. he didn't wait for that direction to become very uh, clear first he kind of you know he wanted to do that so yeah, I think there was absolutely that uh, there, there, there was an appetite for a strong man and it looked like Schultz was going to fulfill that. As time has gone on though, he hasn't followed that up with anything much. So you, you do, there's a re, there is a real sense of crisis here. Uh, going back to Euro intelligence, they had an, a, another article a couple of days ago, Germany on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Uh, that was on Friday actually. And they said, well, you know, we normally don't talk much about opinion polls, uh, but there have been some really remarkable uh, polls coming out of Germany. Said so that they, they, they wrote, they wrote, the Germans have transitioned from complacency to panic, with the same speed as SDP politicians have shifted their views on Vladimir Putin. And they talked about some different sentiment polls. Uh, they've got in terms of, are you optimistic or pessimistic about Germany's future? The results are the worst ever. Uh, only 19% optimistic. One third will be believe uh, that there will be a third world war. And they contrasted the results of these kind of polls to what happened in 2014 when Vladimir Putin invaded Crimea. You know, that shocked Europe. But it only moved the needle on these polls a tiny amount. This has moved the needle on these polls a whole lot more. Uh, so they went on to, to to write in a situation as febrile as this, politics is per, is prone to change quickly. Many assumptions we may hold about Germany's attitude towards the economy, like nuclear power, relations with Russia, could turn on its head in no time. We may be only one chemical attack away from a complete shift in German energy policy, for, for example. At that point, many more taboos will fall, and polls will reflect that. You know, these polls, they're looking at Germany and they're saying, this sense of panic is creating an atmosphere uh, for very quick change. And then I think what we've seen early on this week is a series of articles. Euro Intelligence had one, Spiegel had another, talking about how now uh, Germans are in general very dissatisfied with the leadership that Mr. Schultz is providing. Yes, he seemed strong at first. Now he doesn't. He, he did not follow that up with anything much at all. Uh, he gave a uh, an interview recently where you know, he said, what really scared me is this incredible emphasis on geopolitics, geopolitical thinking of the Russian president. I mean, look, if you imagine Hitler doing something in the run-up to World War II, you don't want your prime minister coming out and saying, well, I'm a little bit scared of Hitler right now. <laughs> right. Uh, that's not something that's going to, to, to fill the world with confidence. Your intelligence wrote, as the world looks at him, he appears overwhelmed and full of fear. Oh, sorry, that was a, actually a Ukrainian um, Ukrainian-born German German journalists saying that, uh, but they said they agreed with that perception. Uh, and he, you know, he they talked about they, they talked about the the remarkable decision that Schultz made after the invasion, but said in the cold light of morning, 
you know, they don't amount to much. The changes that he's made on Russia uh, doesn't amount to much. And then Spiegel's article, well, that was called Where's Olaf Schultz? German Chancellor opts for a low profile uh, at moment of crisis. You know, he is not there, obviously, out in front leading the way. And so it is create, instead of him being the strong leader that everybody's craved, people, I think, are settling back into, okay, there's still a Merkel there. You know, there's still a vacuum. The, we, we need, and now we've got this crisis. We need somebody that can actually lead us. Yeah. It's stunning how, how quickly, uh, you know, th- if you think about when uh, he made that announcement just a few weeks ago, that these would be the headlines that we would be reading uh, just the turnaround time in public opinion shows just how volatile the situation is. And, and there is this kind of sense of, of panic among uh, the German people that seems to be driving this. You could see, you know, we've talked about just the prophecies of the Bible showing that there is going to be a strong man leading Germany. Uh, Mr. Fleury has been talking about this for decades and Herbert W. Armstrong before him. Um, you, whoever that man is, is watching what Olaf Scholz did that worked, that got the public excited and says, you know, this really is what Germany needs right now. Uh, maybe you could just talk about that prophecy and why this is something that we focus so much of our attention on. Yeah, I, this is from this is from Mr. Armstrong in 1950, and it could have been written today. Uh, so he writes, the most important, um, most important of all is the outlook from here is for a continued drift at Washington. Tough talk, but no tough action. The nations of Europe, directly in the very shadow of the great Russian bear, are becoming disturbed, distrustful of America, and thinking more and more about uniting themselves into a United States of Europe. All that is lacking now is for the new supreme leader, the successor to Adolf Hitler, to rise up and assert himself and take command. The stage is all set, and while we totter perilously on the very brink of war with Russia still, our real danger is this coming United States of Europe, which will resurrect the Roman Empire, and yet we're not even cognizant of that danger. Uh, He goes on to, to say, in due time, it could be one or two years, it might be longer, a powerful leader will arise in Europe, probably a German, who will perfect a new thing on the world political scene that will stun the world. Suddenly, the world will behold a United States of Europe. He went on to say, well, some of these nations are going to come from from Eastern Europe. Britain's not going to be part of it. But in 1950, he's describing the the very process that we see right now. Europe is dissatisfied with America. They're distrustful. They see a lot of tough talk from and and really preposterous talk from, from Mr. Biden and no action. They need to look for themselves. And when they, you know, there's a sense of panic, there's a sense of crisis. When they look at Olaf Schultz, though, he doesn't seem to be rising to the moment. You know, he, he like the Spiegel says, he kind of is treating the Russian situation the way, main way, same way he might treat a, a housing shortage in Hamburg. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's not rising to the drama uh, of the moment. And it's almost, it's, it's almost, it's weird. It would be funny if it were in kind of a different context, the way you have like Vladimir Zelensky getting up there and giving a dramatic speech to the German parliament and then he just kind of moves on with, okay, business as usual. Well, next we'll discuss this next minutia bit of normal German politics on the agenda. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is no sense of crisis that, or that he's dealing with crisis there. Uh, so no leadership from Washington, no leadership from that current leader, that current uh, chancellor. So they're looking for a leader, leadership in Germany. You can go back 1991 very early days of the Trumpet magazine. We just looked at early days of Mr. Armstrong. Mr. Flurry wrote, if a real crisis develops, will the Germans call for a new Führer? Your Bible says that is going to happen. So yes, when you get a crisis in Europe, they need a strong leader. Uh, and so because this has been an absolute rock solid, consistent prophecy that Mr. Armstrong made for decades, that Mr. Flurry has now made for decades, because the Bible has a lot to say about a strong leader coming in Germany in this end times, and that that he's going to play a crucial role in end time events, that he is the catalyst in many ways of so many different end time events. This is why we've got an article from Mr. Flurry on the response from Germany that Putin's invasion is causing in our upcoming trumpet print. 
Uh, and this is a point that he made con- repeatedly on this, that watch Putin, but then watch for Europe to want its own Putin. Mm-hmm. Uh, that this is in some ways going to be the biggest, most consequential thing that, hap- that will happen from this, exactly as Mr. Mr. Armstrong said, because Vladimir Putin by himself, there are a lot of prophecies about him. There are even more about this strong European leader. He is going to cause so many things to happen. You know, when he's on the scene, we really are in, in, in the countdown in a real real sense if in end time events uh and so many different items of god's plan are going to be shuffling into place very quickly it will be a a dark time very quickly but a very short uh dark time until we're into some of just the most wonderful prophecies in the bible as well really stunning to uh see the way that the stage continues to be set for the fulfillment of those prophecies watch germany that was uh, herbert w armstrong's Uh, forecast for many decades as we put this next trumpet print edition together we're we're trying to find ways that we can really highlight that uh, those quotes that you uh, gave from herbert w armstrong this forecast that he's uh, that we've focused on so much over the years uh, we really do need to keep our eyes on the political scene there in Germany. And in the meantime, that uh, the money that Olaf Scholz committed to German military spending, that's going to be spent. The, uh, the pledge that he uh, had to increase its spending 2% of GDP per year, that's going to uh, proceed forward apace regardless of uh, leadership vacuum. Uh, so again, all, all, uh, all of these elements are moving forward to fulfill those prophecies that we've focused so much attention on. We've been talking with trumpet writer Richard Palmer about what's happening in Germany as a result of Russia's invasion in Ukraine. He's written a trumpet brief about this that should go out today. Go check that out, and we'll link to his article from about a week ago, Germany's Phony War on Russia, as well as Gerald Flurry's booklet, A Strong German Leader is Imminent. Thanks so much, Richard. Great, great to be here. This is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. The left talks a lot about the value of freedom and individual choice, but their actions tell a very different story, as we will hear in this report from Rufaro Manjepa. One of the biggest differences between the left and the right is branding. The left, which tends to be in control of the media, in control of entertainment and popular culture, has successfully branded the Judeo-Christian values which this country was founded upon as antiquated, constricting, racist, backwards, primitive, defunct, irrelevant, and burdensome. But the left has also expertly branded its own values. Its own values, which are really perverted and backwards have been branded as positive, as progressive, as tolerant, as loving and pro-equality and pro-choice. And what's the effect of this masterful branding? What's the result? The result is that in society today, up is down, black is white, right is wrong. Now, man's perception of right and wrong has been muddled since the very beginning. In the Garden of Eden, God instructed Adam and Eve in right and wrong. He taught the right way. Adam and Eve simply chose wrong. But crucially, God allowed Adam and Eve a choice. And he instructed them in the consequences of their choices. Deuteronomy 30 verse 19 brings this out perfectly. It says, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your seed may live. See, since Adam and Eve, God has given every human being that has ever lived the freedom to choose. Free moral agency is an inalienable right from God. 
But Satan the devil, the God of this world, as 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 brings out, he has different ideas. He teaches the wrong way and he doesn't want people to be able to choose otherwise. He is determined to take away even the ability, the freedom to choose the right. And through the radical left, Satan has been carrying out an all-out attack on free moral agency. He is a branding mastermind. The left is so good at branding because Satan is so good at branding. But how he operates is a form of tyranny. The left talks about free love, freedom to do what you want, freedom to love who you want. They talk about my body, my choice. That's what they view as freedom. But our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Flurry, asked in No Freedom Without Law, he said, did you know that what most people call freedom today is really slavery? See, this expert branding has made slavery look like freedom. It's made black look like white. Consider the abortion argument, for example. The left has branded their position as pro-choice, which sounds fantastic. But consider how satanic this really is. They say that they want women to have the choice to do what they want with their bodies. But in reality, they want to make the murder of unborn babies to be legal. They want you to be free to choose to legally commit murder without suffering the consequences. Now, Romans 6 makes it clear that even though we are free to choose, choosing sin still makes us slaves of sin. And the only way to be truly free is by subjecting ourselves to God's law. It's possible to become a slave to sin by choosing wrong. But Satan doesn't want the possibility of us being enslaved to sin. He wants it to be an inevitability. And that is where the branding comes in. Because the right is considered to be wrong, it will not and cannot be tolerated. And every single option will be exercised in order to disparage those who believe in the right. US Supreme Court nominee Ketanji Brown Jackson believes that pro-lifers are quote, hostile, nosy, and in-your-face people. Dame Magazine wrote that anti-abortion laws have never been concerned with different opinions on personhood. They're all about upholding white supremacy through racial and gender oppression. Indiana Senate Democrats believe that if you are anti-abortion, then that means you're not pro-life but you're pro-oppression. In short, if you aren't pro-choice, you're consequently branded as a noisy, hostile and in-your-face person. You're also branded a racist, a bigoted, misogynistic sexist. If you aren't pro-choice, you deserve to be silenced. That's what the Daily Wire's Matt Walsh learned. After taking an anti-abortion stance, he was inundated with death threats, wishes from people that his wife and his five-year-old daughter would get raped and have to have a million abortions. For them, allowing dissenting opinions to coexist with theirs isn't an option. And that's where the tyranny comes into play. And it's true across the board with the leftist value system. If you aren't pro-mask or pro-vaccine, then you have to be locked in your home until you change your mind. If you believe the scientific fact that a man is a man and a woman is a woman, then you're a transphobic hypocrite who isn't allowed to go to the college he wants, get the job that he wants, or live a peaceful life. 
If you are white, you are inherently racist and have to spend the rest of your life groveling and apologizing for the color of your skin or else you are advancing racism. It doesn't matter that the facts speak for themselves. It doesn't matter that masks don't work, that the vaccine is more harmful than it is effective, that COVID-19 isn't a fraction as dangerous as they say, that women who've had abortions have higher rates of depression and anxiety, the fact that the LGBT have the highest rates of depression, anxiety, and suicide in America. It doesn't matter that the supposedly racist majority white population of America voted in a black man to the highest office in the land twice. The facts don't matter. So Satan, the radical left, they use branding, bullying, intimidation, and even physical imprisonment in your own home or in an actual jail if you're a January 6th protester, if you don't agree that the wrong is right. Now, in the beginning, God himself established the right from the wrong, and he could have created us as robots who only do the right thing, but he didn't. Again, if you choose to sin, you can still become enslaved to sin. But no matter what you believe, God himself allows everyone the right to choose whether or not to do the right or the wrong. But the God of this world doesn't want you free to choose. He can't stand the idea of anyone being free to choose the right or the wrong. Because... If you can choose the right, you actually would be able to enjoy the positive effects of doing right. And so he's masterminded these tyrannical governments, a tyrannical media and popular culture that forces only one way. He wants to force everyone to be pro-choice. He wants to force everyone to wear masks and vaccinate. He wants to force everyone to be or support the LGBT movement. He wants to force everyone to believe that wrong is right, not only to believe it, but to support it as well. What amazing arrogance, because not even the supreme creator of the universe denies us choice. But Satan doesn't want us free to choose he wants to force us only to do the wrong. And it's done so subtly through masterful branding. Our editor-in-chief, Mr. Flurry, wrote in his booklet, The Epistles of Peter, A Living Hope. He wrote, The Apostle Peter taught about true freedom and it got him into serious trouble because his audience didn't understand what true freedom was. He continues, Peter talked about people whose idea of freedom was in error. And then Mr. Flurry quotes 2 Peter 2 verse 19, which says, They promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a man, to that he is enslaved. It's slavery. It's tyranny. Satan wants everyone enslaved to the wrong. He wants everyone enslaved to that which brings misery, turmoil, depression, anxiety, sickness, hatred, destruction, violence, anarchy, and chaos. And he doesn't want even one person to be able to choose anything that could result in the opposite. He doesn't want anyone to choose God's law of liberty, as it's called in James 1 verse 25. His expert branding has made God's law seem oppressive and burdensome. He's made the constitution of the land look oppressive and burdensome. He doesn't want anyone to be free to choose the right way, the way that brings freedom freedom from addictions, 
freedom from poverty, from divorce, from perversion, from hatred, from chaos in the home. Mr. Gerald Flurry continues, these individuals promise freedom and liberty, but they never talk about the law of liberty. They offer a false freedom, a lawless liberty, which is really slavery. They talk about love, he says, but it is a shallow, meaningless love, not grounded in God's law. Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong explained in his book, The Incredible Human Potential, why it's so important for us to have the freedom to choose. He wrote, God is able to create character within us, but it must be done as a result of our independent free choice. This kind of character must be developed, he wrote, by the choice and the intent of the one in whom it is to exist. He wrote even further that character requires the free choice and decision of the separate entity in whom it is to be created. No wonder Satan hates free choice. No wonder he wants us enslaved by tyranny. No wonder dissenters are attacked. He hates our potential to develop holy, righteous character. Free moral agency is not only an inalienable right, it's an incredible blessing. And it's one that Satan wants to take away. So we have to cling to God's law of liberty. We have to stand up to Satan's tyranny and fight not only for our right, but the whole world's inalienable right to choose to do the right and have God work in our lives. This is Trumpet Hour with Joel Hilliker. Most Americans take their health for granted, but when they get sick, they trust in our scientifically advanced healthcare system. Trouble is, this system has been exposed for having quite a lot of sickness of its own. To talk about this, we have via Skype from his office in British Columbia, holistic nutritionist and personal trainer Jorg Mardian. Hello, Jorg. Hello there. So healthcare spending in America keeps going up. Uh, I think maybe you can confirm this, that we spend more on healthcare uh, out of any nation in the world. Uh, the healthcare system is making plenty of money, but sickness keeps going up at the same time. What's, what's the problem here from your view? Right. That's where the, the scales are unbalancing. Uh, right now, America is spending about 3.2 trillion annually on healthcare, which is, you know, a staggering amount. But in seven years, it's it's uh, supposed to go up to 6.2 trillion, you know. So it's really difficult to to grasp the scale of those numbers. Um, and when we look at that, we ask, what is the cause? You know, I mean, the average American spends about three thousand dollars of their annual money. Uh, going out, eating out in in restaurants and such, right? Um, so there's a physical price to pay for that. I mean, right now, 74% of Americans are considered overweight. And out of that number, about 43% are considered clinically obese. I mean, that's a, that's a lot of people with extra weight. So we're living in a time where people don't die from a lack of calories and sustenance. We're living in a time where people die from lack of nutrients and overconsumption. Herbert W. Armstrong talked about that, uh, just the fact that you have some nations in the world where uh, scarcity really is a problem. People just don't have enough food to eat. But in the wealthier nations, you have the problem of too much food, but still not enough nutrients. Exactly. Um, but the end, the end result is, is uh, tragic, just the same. You know, and then the people who turn to medical specialists that train in every minutia of disease with with hardly a thought to preventative care. Mm-hmm. You know, and here's the problem with that. It's it's the top tier of healthcare that's available to men right now, but it doesn't guarantee good health. 
Mm-hmm. You know, um, a fraction of the the healthcare practice today is based on solid evidence. You know, a lot of the decisions that that are made, uh, just according to studies, look to be arbitrary. You know, just variable. It's 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 basically a sophisticated guessing game, and that's what what's really shocking about it. When when you look at the studies, uh, hospitals are no better. You know, there, there's about two hundred billion dollars worth of uh, aggressive testing and treatment, and what does it do? Well, it harms patients, it generates medical error, and, and it leads to death. Uh, these numbers are nothing uh, to sneeze at either. I mean, this system contributes to between uh, 210 and 440,000 deaths annually. Mm. And that's the medical system. You know, and, and then we have the, the insurance companies, the medical equipment vendors, the clinics, even the associations like the National Cancer Institute, all of those allow profit to trump quality of life. That's the first issue with them. It's how much money can we make? And we know that because that's why there's an endless search for a medical cure, you know, rather than lifestyle behavior correction. Right. It's why the federal, federal government allows health studies to be funded and conducted by commercial interests and then he uses those same studies, which may be flawed, as a basis for the health policy. And so we get these uh, studies showing, you know, on harmful vaccines, on genetically modified foods, or pernicious chemicals. You know, it's a system that's never designed to provide good health. Yeah, the uh, the idea. Well, it's kind of the the whole system. They call it the healthcare system, but it really focuses on. It doesn't really focus on making people healthy. That's not the intent of it. The intent is to address sickness, and in some ways, all of the money that you're talking about uh, accrues to them. The sicker people are, the 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 more problems there are that they're having to contend with. The richer they get. That's right. Uh, it's really a disease system, you know, and um, and there's other industries that contribute to that, like the the pharmaceutical industry. It, it's in hand and glove, you know. Um, there's a book called "The Born with a Junk Food Deficiency," and the author Martha Rosenberg she takes on a lot of those practices of that industry, you know. She she talks about doctor studies and um, misleading advertising and government collusion. And, and influence peddling, you know, with policymakers, kickbacks. I mean, it's like the mafia. Yeah. You know? Well, it's kind and, of like uh, what we've what we've seen even with, uh, I guess this is a, a related subject, but say with uh, COVID-19 and the governmental response to that, how the government has been promoting these vaccines that uh, are manufactured by pharmaceutical companies who have... Uh, board members who have have been former government officials, government officials that were former board members of these pharmaceutical companies. In some ways, you have these pharmaceutical companies are almost like an extension of this entire system that is basically making money from sickness. And it is incentivized to uh, ensure that that sickness is, is still there so that they're able to continue treating. Oh, you just hit the nail right on the head. And, and, and here's the effect of that, exactly what you said. You know, there, there's nothing even more profoundly pernicious than these COVID vaccines. Um, let's look at it. Two, uh, two million adverse events, um, health events that happen already that are documented. Uh, and about 67,000 deaths between two systems, the U.S. Varies and the European system. Mm. That that's just what we know, and through it all, all these uh, pharmaceutical companies they made about thirty four, thirty five billion dollars in two thousand twenty one. I mean, you talk about hand in glove, and with everything hidden, where who talks about this? And and then you know, there's other industries as well which are just as sitting t- as tightly with the government, like the food industry. 10 companies control every large um, food and beverage brand in the world, 10 companies. And they wield incredible power with the government. You know, they fight regulation. 
They have influence. They use misleading advertising. They bankroll shady research on unhealthy ingredients, not unhealthy ingredients, unhealthy ingredients. And the result of that is that harmful foods are everywhere. Um, and then what's worse about that is you've got supersizing re free refills, all you can eat buffets. These are all default choices that drive obesity and sickness, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and then we can look at uh, modern agriculture. You know, a lot of American agriculture is just intensive farming, um, single crop farms and animal production facilities. And uh, intensive farming is just uh, agriculture that's designed to maximize the profit using as few resources as possible, but getting the highest yields from the plants or animals or the earth. Mm -hmm. So we know it's not good. Um, the end result is that we've got a lot of viruses that spread from animals to humans. Um, we've, we've got antimicrobial resistance. Uh, we've got tons of chemical use. The environment is contaminated. And again, it drives obesity and chronic disease, you know. So now we've lost the connection to the soil. I mean, kids can even identify, they can identify a supermarket junk food by name. That's not an issue. But I was looking at the study and it says that kids, many, many kids can't identify vegetables by sight or understand where their food comes from. Mm. So the industry doesn't educate, it just gives bad foods to us, right? So what has happened here is that the Americans have surrendered control of their health to a, uh, a fatally flawed healthcare system. And it is fatally flawed because every parameter of it perpetuates disease in belief, in messaging, and in action. You know, we're talking about massive uh, movements of people, huge sums of money, no, enormous uh, size of, of these industries and sectors of the American economy. Uh, and in, in some ways, it's quite overwhelming. Like you're talking about the entire system that's being uh, that's been built up on this faulty foundation. And maybe you could even bring in if there there are other other aspects of this that kind of tie in. In another sense, the individual who is trying to make good choices does have quite a lot of uh, a lot of power over the over themselves. And you don't necessarily have to participate in all of that to to some degree. You can you can uh, put quite a bit of distance between yourself and these industries. Well, a lot of it is that we're being educated by the media. Uh, these industries use the media to educate us. And that's why I say our kids don't understand where the food comes from because the media doesn't give the right messaging. The media is in on it as well because the media gets advertising from the pharmaceutical companies, the agriculture, right. the big food companies, right? And so we're listening to the wrong messages. So we, we have to look at education and, and look at where we get our education from and then dig down into that education and take some work. I mean, for myself, I'm in the industry. I constantly have to look for the right education. It, it takes some effort. It's the same as when we go shopping. It takes effort to read. You know, uh, we see it with, with the vaccines. People just believe what is said. It takes effort to understand the side effects. We, we have to educate ourselves. And once we educate ourselves and we have that right education, um, then wonderful things happen with the body because we say, ah, oh, there's organic foods. There's foods without chemicals that don't impact us. You know, there's, should we be eating so many um, junk foods and carbohydrates? You know, is 60% is of my diet carbohydrates? Maybe that's why I'm overweight, <laughs> you know? That, that that's not an issue that should be shocking if we look around because the messaging is out there, but we do have to dig a little bit. Um, and so that's, that would be my biggest, what I do with my clients as well. Uh, I've just got, I've got some clients right now. They have wonderful results. I'm giving them the right education. It, it's not earth shaking. It's been out there a mm -hmm. long time. It's everywhere. You have to look. Well, it's uh, good to have that education, and uh, we always appreciate the education that you bring to us on, uh, on these topics that empower us to make 
good decisions for our own selves and our own families. We've been talking with personal trainer and holistic nutritionist Jorg Mardian about the sickness in the healthcare system. He's working on an article that should appear soon at thetrumpet.com on this. We also uh, just want to mention a booklet that we have in our literature library that explains how these problems are going to be corrected very soon. Uh, Obviously, we're talking about systemic problems that are going to require really revolutionary changes, and that revolution is coming. The booklet that we have is called The World Tomorrow, What It Will Be Like, uh, and it's written by Herbert W. Armstrong. I'd really encourage you to uh, to go check that out, and it will give you uh, a lot of hope and a lot of uh, a, a lot to uh, stake your your hope on the revolution that's going to be taking place very soon. Jorg, it's been great to have you on. We really appreciate you coming. Oh, it's been wonderful. Thank you. It's time for today's Last Word. You've heard of the marshmallow experiment. A child is placed in a room with a treat on a table and told that he can eat it now or he can wait 15 minutes and get two treats. Some kids devour the marshmallow immediately. Others try to hold out but end up nibbling or gobbling. Only those willing to sacrifice immediate gratification receive the double reward. Sacrificing means surrendering something for the sake of something else. Success in life requires many sacrifices. We surrender marshmallows almost indefinitely for the sake of better health. The student surrenders an evening out with friends to study for an important test. The athlete surrenders comfort and ease for a shot at a championship The musician surrenders thousands of hours for the sake of his art. Sometimes we'd rather avoid it, but the truth remains. Anything truly worth having requires sacrifice. You must give up your time, money, comfort, pleasure, convenience, opportunity, independence, prerogative, and or other things. The greater the goal, the more you have to sacrifice. But for the right goal, the sacrifice is worth it. Sacrifice opens doors to greatness, even transcendence. God is driven by the greatest, most magnificent goal possible, to enlarge the God family. And family is worth sacrifice. For God... Pursuing this goal has required extraordinary planning, investment, resolve, zeal, toil, struggle, and countless sacrifices, some unimaginably severe. At Passover, God's people memorialize the greatest sacrifice of all, the Most High God, offering His only eternal and loving companion at genuine risk of losing Him for eternity. The Word surrendered his divinity, took on the form of a servant, gave his flesh over to satanic persecutors, and risked dying forever for the sake of the healing and salvation of sinners. God sacrificed his Son to offer others sonship. Christ sacrificed to the death to extend others' life. His crucifixion opened the way for him to say to human beings, I ascend unto my Father and your Father. God, the Father of lights, begets his children of his own will, it says in James 1, verses 17 to 18. Gerald Flurry wrote this in the Epistle of James booklet, Building a family physical or spiritual, requires no small commitment. This Greek expression means that God has a total, complete commitment, not only to start and nurture a family, but to complete it. God begat us 
but that's only the beginning. The Father is committed to us until we are born, and then he provides for his family forever. The God family sets the unsurpassable example of sacrifice, sacrifice that opens the door to far greater things. On the human level, Abraham sacrificed his beloved son And that guaranteed spiritual and material promises from God that have changed human history. And God asks us, like Abraham, to follow his example. Romans 12.1 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. We are to sacrifice, not by dying, but by living, sacrificing our will every day for the sake of God's will. In fact, by emulating his model of sacrifice, we participate in the advancement of his ultimate goal, God shaping more selfless members of his family. By building so much of the human experience around family, God gives us specific opportunities to develop the sacrificial mindset needed for his goal. Success in family requires many sacrifices. Giving up personal freedom and flexibility in order to marry, and still more, to have children. Eschewing attractive alternatives to embrace the demanding roles of provider and homemaker, Surrendering that evening of personal pursuits to help your daughter with her research paper. Redirecting that vacation money to pay expenses for your son's soccer season. Giving up space and energy and privacy to move your sickly widowed mother into your own home. Right-thinking people can recognize the nobility in prioritizing and sacrificing for family. But this Satan-inspired society has come to venerate individual fulfillment and self-actualization instead. Far too many people have lost their natural affection, as is prophesied in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 3. Natural affection. That includes the sentiment that drives a man to pursue a woman and to devote himself to providing for and protecting and educating his family. Natural affection includes that tendency that motivates a woman to voluntarily subject herself to her husband and to welcome the labors required in having children and rearing children. When that natural affection is gone, individuals go their own way. Families shrivel or splinter or they never form in the first place. Assess your roles within your physical family and within God's spiritual family. Ask yourself, how much have I picked up the world's thinking regarding family? Am I willing to make the sacrifices necessary to help this family flourish? How much do I need to change to truly think as God does? It takes spiritual depth to even understand this God family concept, and it takes commitment to follow through with it. Anytime you struggle with surrendering time, money, comfort, short-term pleasure, convenience, opportunity, independence, prerogative, or anything else, ask yourself, is this for the right goal? If it's sacrifice for the sake of family, the answer is yes. Your sacrifices are going towards something far greater than pleasures or comforts or recognition greater than achievements or championships or art, you're sacrificing toward the ultimate goal. Meditate on God's example of sacrifice. He asks nothing of you that he has not already done infinitely more. And whatever sacrifice he asks of you, he promises not just a double reward, but manifold more in return. Jesus promised in Mark 10... There is no man that has left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, but he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time 
houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come, eternal life. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that will do it for today's Trumpet Hour. You can send me any thoughts on today's program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to my guests, Richard Palmer, Rufaro Manyepa, and Jorg Mardian. Thanks to Nick Irwin and Dwight Falk for engineering and production. I'll leave you with this thought from Thomas Jefferson. If a nation expects to be ignorant and free in a state of civilization, it expects what never was and never will be. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. You've been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.